let me add my welcome. I'm Steve. I'm one of the, the elders here in uh, Brentford. Um, how do you follow that? Um, I, um, I, I want to kind of make sure it's, it's clear that uh, if people have questions about what Stuart said, thank you, Richard. Um, uh, Stuart and Mary are around. Um, they're happy to chat to people if you've got any concerns, any thoughts. Um, they'll be here for another um, couple of months. Uh, if you want to chat to any of the elders as well, um, uh, Richard, who you've um, seen so far, myself, Todd uh, and Martin, um, do speak to any of us. Uh, if you want to speak with us, pray with us, uh, we uh, we delighted to do that. Um, we are uh, going through a series of the book of Galatians at the moment. Um, there are some Bibles on the um, on the, some of the seats. We're in Galatians, second half of Galatians chapter 2 from verse 11 this morning. Um, it'd be great if you could turn to that. There are fact finders at the back and orders of service, um, uh, outlines of the, the sermon, sorry. Um, if you find that useful to track, uh, do grab one of those that are just on the table at the back. Um, the, um, there's three, three words that we're going to learn a little bit about this morning from Paul. Um, so uh, those of you who take notes or track what's going on, uh, the three words that we're going to find out something about are faith, justification, and confidence. Um, Colin Buchanan wrote a kid's song called Big Words That End in Shun, um, Sanctification, and so on. Uh, today we're going to learn about one of the big words that end in shun, justification, um, as well as faith and confidence. So look out for those three uh, and anything we learn from God's word about those. Uh, let me pray, then we'll read uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll dig in. Let's pray. Loving Father, we uh, thank you that you're the speaking God, the God who proclaims your word, who makes it plain to your people uh, who you are, and what you have done. Father, thank you that we can see in your words how to relate properly to you. Uh, and that is our greatest need, to know how to relate to our creator properly. As we uh, hear your words this morning, may we hear you speak clearly, hear your voice. May we hear it with ears that are open and hearts ready to respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's, um, uh, let's read God's word, uh, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11 through to the end of the chapter. Uh, when you see the name Cephas, that's another uh, name for Peter, uh, one of Jesus' uh, closest followers and friends. And Paul says this, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when, they came, uh, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word, and it cannot be broken. If you were to score yourself out of 100, where 100 is you have the swagger of a YouTube influencer, and one is constantly apologizing for yourself, like a Hugh Grant movie character, what would you score in terms of confidence? Are you a confident person? How many days of the week would you give yourself that score? Are you the sort of person who is a 75 on a Monday, uh, but a 25 by Friday? How confident a person are you? When you think about the future, when you look at what is yet to come, when you think on what we've heard this morning already, how confident are you about the future? Do you have a swagger about you? Do you think of yourself as a confident person, knowing where you are going in life, knowing that you belong, knowing that you matter? Or are you the sort of person who is constantly plagued with uncertainty? Someone who, can think, who thinks quietly, I'm not worth much of anything. Someone who's been told by bullies or by bosses, by uh, your own employees, that you're a waste of space. Someone who's worried about the fact that you don't pray enough, that you don't know the right words to be a good Christian or as good as somebody else. Someone who worries about your rubbish evangelistic efforts, thinking they're just an embarrassment. Uh, this morning, I, I, want, well, I want us to see in what Paul writes in these verses in Galatians, uh, the, the secret to being the most confident person in the universe. Um, this is not going to be one of these 10 ways to be more confident sermons. But Paul gives us in these verses the key to being the most confident person in the universe. Paul will show us that there are two ways to live. Uh, one of them breeds constant worry about whether you are good enough for God's standards. And one of them means that you will be absolutely certain no matter what your day looks like, you'll be certain what your eternity looks like. Uh, the, the summary, the big idea of what we're going to see this morning in God's words uh, is this, that the weakest faith in Jesus is better by far than the strongest faith in anything else. And so you should be confident and trust in Jesus. The weakest faith in Jesus is better by far 
than the strongest faith in anything else. So be confident and trust in Jesus. There's two uh, choices that we see Paul open up in these verses. And and the first one, um, he opens up through recounting a real encounter he had with one of the figureheads in the early church. Uh, We hear uh, Paul in these verses, we heard about it a bit last week, but again this morning, uh, Jesus' close friend Cephas is in view, Peter. Paul is telling the Galatians and us that death and uncertainty waits for you if you keep your eyes on your own performance. Death and uncertainty wait for you if you keep your eyes on your own performance. Uh, Earlier in his ministry, Paul uh, uh, visited, it was one of the first cities he visited, Antioch, uh, quite close to the start of his uh, missionary work. Uh, It was a key city in uh, Turkey and Syria. Um, It was the first place in history that people were called Christian, Uh, as a way of describing Jesus' followers. Uh, It was a city that was full of influential people, people uh, often from Greek-speaking backgrounds. Uh, Paul and his helper, Barnabas, were there for about a year. Uh, They really invested in getting the church going there. Um, And people began to trust Jesus uh, from all sorts of different backgrounds. It was an important church for lots of reasons, uh, and one of them was that people came both from a a Jewish traditional background, people who knew the promises of God, but for one of the first times it became a church that was mixed of of people both from that background and who'd never been uh, uh, in a Jewish background before, people who had no familiarity with the promises of God. They were mixed together. Uh, Antioch became a a test bed for a new type of church that Jesus was building, uh, one where the gospel brought together those who were steeped in the history of God and those who were totally new to him. People who were, on the one hand, uh, used to growing up learning the language of God in the synagogue every week, mixing together with those who didn't know the right words, those who didn't have the right vocabulary to articulate what they believed. Uh, They they followed the same master, they followed Jesus, but they came with none of the background, none of the the history. Uh, This is a really niche reference that may not kind of mean anything to anyone, but I I had a a fluid mechanics professor at university. It's a great way to start an illustration. Uh, He said that the most dangerous place to be uh, is at the boundary between two fluids. Uh, Two fluids that are mixing together is the most dangerous place you can exist because boundary effects are volatile. Where two different things mix together, you get turbulence, you get friction, you get things bumping up against each other, you get reactions. Uh, you, You can see it at play if you get a posh Americano from... Um, Sam's or um, one of the other new coffee shops that's opening. Um, If you order an iced coffee um, and you put the Americano in the glass and then you pour the milk on top and you see the kind of swirls of milk going through the the black Americano, you can see the kind of mixture and bumps that are happening in these two mixing liquids. There's eddies, there's whorls, there's uh, turbulence. Christchurch Antioch, or CCA on their Instagram, was full of these boundary effects. There was all sorts of uh, turbulence going on in the church. 
It had people who were trying to figure out what it looked like to be God's people following Jesus from two completely opposite starting points. They had people there who were following Jesus, having learned in Sabbath school every Saturday what it was to be God's people. And they had people who were learning to love Jesus who had none of that history. They all in common had Jesus, but they were approaching him from the opposite ends of the spectrum. The the church had people who came from bone-deep religion, if you like, and from bone-deep paganism. Uh, And into that context walks Cephas, uh, Jesus' closest friend, the figurehead of the church in the um, first few years, uh, the first few chapters of, of Acts, you see um, Cephas as being the, the kind of um, the guy that's leading things forward. But at this point, Paul realizes that, that Cephas is doing something wrong, and he needs to call it out. He needs to stand up to Cephas. He needs to um, call out the fact that Cephas is living in a way that is out of kilter with the words that Cephas was saying. Um, there, there's an episode of, of Friends uh, the, the comedy show where, where Joey, who's an actor by profession, and Ross, who is a scientist by profession, end up working together. Uh, so Joey, who's an actor, gets a job in the museum where Ross, the scientist, works. Um, Joey's pretending to be a tour guide um, and kind of making it up as he goes along. Um, and there's, the tension in the comedy in the episode comes from the fact that at lunchtime they can't sit together. So when they go to the canteen, the, these two best friends are told to sit at different tables. Uh, the, the blue blazer guys, the, the guys who do the tour, aren't allowed to sit with the lab coats because they are different people. They are separate. They don't mix. And I think maybe when we hear Paul talk about what happened with Cephas, we have a bit of that kind of image in our head. There's a, a kind of a clique going on here. That's the problem. That is part of the problem that, that Paul is challenging, but it is not the, the whole, the heart of what Uh, what Paul is challenging Cephas over. It's not just about cliques. This is not just a a social problem that Paul is challenging here. What Cephas is doing is is introducing a salvation problem, not a social problem, a salvation problem. Who you sat and ate with in that uh, society, uh, it was a statement of the salvation category that you belonged in. You eat with the people who are as saved as you are. Who you eat with is a statement of how you think God should treat you. Eating down, eating with people who are from a a different group, was a way of eroding your savedness. You were giving away some of your status before God by eating with people lower than you. One of the things people always said about Jesus when they were trying to do him down was this is someone who eats with tax collectors and sinners. Who Jesus ate with was in their eyes a statement of how saved he was, how close to God he was. People were saying, you eat with tax collectors and sinners so you are as good as a tax collector and sinner. When Cephas originally came to Antioch, to this mixed church with all its boundary effects, uh, he ate freely with everyone. He didn't didn't distinguish who was sitting at his table. It was a a demonstration, a practical outflow of the gospel that he taught, that nobody has a different route to God. Everyone comes through Jesus. No one is spiritually better or worse off. He ate with everyone because everyone was equal in the gospel of Jesus. Not socially equal, 
but spiritually equal, equally saved, equally right with God if they trust in him, equally far from God if they don't trust him. The best and the worst in the church, those who are traditionally far from God and those traditionally close to him, are both the same in God's eyes. That's what their table manners said. But then a, a group turns up in Antioch who associated with one of the other leaders in the early church. People who were used to worshipping in a church that was more monochrome, that was more filled, used to being filled with uh, people who came from a Jewish background, from the historic people of God. They were used to thinking that rightness with God was determined by ritual cleanness. Other people's ritual uncleanness can rub off on you. In their head, cleanness in God's eyes was earned and uncleanness was contagious. So when, Paul chooses, uh, sorry, when Cephas chooses to sit with only people who are from that background and not with the, the others, what he's saying is, I'm worried you're going to contaminate me. I will be less right with God if I sit with you. He put on an actor's mask. That's the word that, that Paul uses. Um, he's pretending to be something. He's pretending to have holiness and virtue that can be protected by himself. Look at my holy face. Look at me. He cut himself off. That's, uh, that's language. Paul's doing a bit of wordplay here. Uh, he was with the circumcision party. It was all about cutting. And he cut himself off from people who were unclean, from people who were from a non-Jewish background, because he was showing he had the ability in his eyes to keep himself clean for God. Peter had two faces. Uh, he had one that, that behaved around others as if they were equally distant from God and equally needed Jesus. And then one that says, I can by my behavior keep away from people who are rungs below me on God's ladder. I can make a difference to how God treats me. And Cephas' behavior was insidious, it was destructive, it didn't just affect himself, but very quickly it affected others as well. He began to influence other people uh, to behave like him, even Barnabas, who Paul trusted to help him in the early days of that church to get it set up, ended up slipping into those patterns. What was the, the big problem? Cephas had a bad practical theology. There was a difference between what he said in his words and what he lived in his life. The theology he lived by was quite different to the theology that he said at the pulpit on a Sunday. What does it mean to trust the promises of God? What is it that Cephas is looking to save himself? Even someone who's grown up as an insider to God's covenant promises, Cephas uh, knows that the mechanics of doing what God's standard demands, that is not the way to be declared right with God. And so Paul tells him, how can it be that you behave in a way that suggests that other people, people who are traditionally even further from God than you were, could do something that you're not willing to do yourself? The heart of what's being discussed in this section of Galatians is what it means to be judged able to live with the perfect, sinless God. When you see Paul use that word justification, when you hear talk of righteousness, that is what is being talked about. It's a decision that is made by a judge. It is 
not a process that's on a spectrum. It's not a, um, it is not a sliding scale. It's a, a binary. You are on the right side of the law and set free to live with God, or you're on the wrong side of the law and you deserve the penalty for breaking what the creator of the universe says matters. In football, you can't score 40% of a goal. You score or you don't. It used to be that you could get a good or a bad reception on a TV channel. You got an analog signal and you can turn the dial slightly to get a slightly better signal. Nowadays, it's digital. You get the channel or you don't. It's on or it's off. We need to learn to fight what our brains have been trained to think in our day-to-day -day lives. Being right with God, Paul is saying, is not an analog thing. It is a, um, it is a digital thing. It is not a spectrum thing. It is a binary thing. There's only two outcomes available, and every person gets one of those two outcomes. Even the best of us don't get the outcome by sometimes or even mostly doing the right thing. The problem that Cephas has is what he's looking at. He wants the outcome of life. He wants to be declared by the judge right with God. But what he's looking at is his own ability to keep himself away from the stain of sin. He's been seduced into thinking that he can live up to God's standards himself. Uh, the comedian Billy Conley once uh, told the story of uh, a nature documentary that was filming in the Serengeti. Uh, the crew were out filming all these animals uh, wandering around. And, uh, and at one point, they, they spot this big, uh, this big cat, um, dangerous predator. And, and the cat begins to kind of loosen its shoulders and kind of um, crack its jaw and look with a fairly ravenous eye towards the film crew. And the, the, the on-camera presenter turns around to see the cameraman strapping on some running shoes. And he, the, the, the presenter says, there's no way you're going to outrun that cat. And the cameraman looks at him and says, I don't need to outrun the cat. I just need to outrun you. <laughs> Peter's uh, choice of table was showing that he thought about justification like that. I don't need to outperform God's law. God is going to grade you and I on a curve. None of us keep it, but I just need to be better than the worst. I need to be not in the bottom 25%. That's how Peter was thinking about God's law. Cephas's eyes were drawn to his own ability. People around him were singing a song that our hearts are in tune with. Show us that you are worthy. Perform. Peter's eyes were on the wrong thing. Peter's misdirected faith was serious because it didn't just cause division. It didn't just cause cliques in church, which is bad enough. It was promising life and delivering death. It gave him uncertainty because it meant that every day he had to keep meeting that standard. And every time he failed, he had to do something to make others look worse or himself look better. And it was so bad because not only did it do that for himself, it taught others to live the same way, to think the same way. So Paul's second option then of the two ways to live uh, shows us how to correct Cephas's mistake. Uh, he's telling him to get back to the true gospel. And he says this, you will live with your eyes on Jesus. 
you will live with your eyes on Jesus. Paul tells us that, that that is because you end up the same as what you put your trust in, the way that God's law works. If you stake your eternity on Jesus, Paul says, as far as the law is concerned, you are morally, spiritually identical to Jesus. God's law, we're told, only applies to those that are alive. The only people who are expected to try and live up to God's standard are those who are alive. Uh, Dead people can't do anything. Dead people can't live up to anything. And at the point you die, Paul says, your status is fixed. It doesn't change. Whatever the law says about you in that instant is what it will say for all eternity. You can't do anything more at that moment to change your status in God's standards. That's why, why trying to perform up to God's standards in the way that Cephas was doing um, makes us anxious and uncertain about the future, about how good we are. Because no matter how good I am today, if I don't keep it up till that moment that I die, I'm in trouble. Uh, every couple of years, um, you, have to, you guys have to renew your permission for us to be able to email you um, uh, with all the kind of data privacy constraints. And the way that that works on the software that we use is that there's a, a query that runs. Uh, and the query says, get me all of the addresses in the database and then filter out the ones that have the flag saying, don't contact me. That's how the database works. Um, it's not quite, but you get the idea. Um, if, if you say, I give my consent, it pulls everyone's email address and you get included in the email. When... Uh, what Paul is saying here is that when we trust in Christ, the flag goes from law applies to Steve to the law no longer applies to Steve. The demand is only active when we have the field that says alive equals true. And by God's design in, in this database, people who stake their eternity on Jesus now have exactly the same data in their row as Jesus does. If you imagine, if I signed up to a service um, that says whenever someone runs a, a credit check on me, someone wants to know about my finances, they get Bill Gates' record. Um, anyone who signs up to it is free. Anyone can sign up to this service. Uh, and when someone uh, run, runs a check, can Steve get a credit card? How many billions does he have in the bank? Well, he has as many as Bill does. How reliable is Steve for a mortgage? Well, he's one of the richest men in the world. So, of course, he can get a mortgage in London. God's pattern is that what is true of the one I trust is true of me. Jesus' performance is good enough. And so, for me, the standard has already been met. That's what Paul tells us. His performance went all the way to death. And so, for me, the current status good enough will never change. If I'm dependent on when I die... I've got to keep going. I've got to keep performing until the moment that I give up. If I rely on Jesus, he is already dead and he is already perfect. Jesus died and so did Paul. Jesus died and so did every one of the people who've ever trusted him. I don't belong to the law anymore, says Paul. I don't have to live to its standard. I belong to Jesus when God's, role, God's law runs its query today, get me everyone who has to live up to my standards and whether they're currently successful, Steve Clark gets a 404 not found. I'm, I'm no longer available to that query. I'm no longer a distinct identity that's there. 
when it, when it pulls back the results, it gets Jesus' results instead. Standard has been met. Perfect. Finished. Paul says, I was nailed to the cross in real reality. Not in a poetic, metaphorical way. I was nailed to the cross in the Middle East on that moment in history. Jesus was put to death and I was put to death in that microsecond. In that moment in time, in that second on that hill in the Middle East, millions and billions of people died simultaneously. During, uh, during the lockdowns and over the kind of first couple of years of, of COVID, we kind of got used to seeing these excess death charts. So you would see like a daily line, uh, the line that said each day how many people have died and is it above what we'd expect or not? Is it a little bit higher or a little bit lower? If you plotted every death in history, the, the graph of excess deaths, there is one spike that would make everything else basically invisible. There is one spike in that moment a couple of millennia ago in the Middle East where billions of people died simultaneously. That's what Paul is saying. There were more deaths in that one microsecond in history than almost every other second in history combined. Because when Jesus died, I died. When Jesus died, everyone who trusts Jesus died at that moment. And because what is true of Jesus is true of me, now that he is alive, I am alive. Not as an autonomous individual. Uh, sometimes I think we, we think about what's happening if you become a Christian as Jesus kind of washes and tidies up and sends us on our way. Uh, we're like we were before, but a, but a bit better. Um, we are more performance like a car coming out of a car wash or, or like one of the, the reality shows where you, you lose several stones and learn not to drink your calories and, and you live a happier life. That's not what Paul is saying here. Every atom of you, if you trust Jesus, is now Jesus. Every strand of DNA in your blood is Jesus. Your fingerprint is Jesus' fingerprint. The one who is living now is not you. The one who is living now is Jesus. The, the difference before and after you become a Christian is stark. You are a different person. Not a better person, a different person. Any living that you do now is not you living, it is Jesus. Life that has already met God's demands. Life that will last forever because God is satisfied to call you right with him. He runs the query, finds Jesus' performance and is satisfied. Paul says that who you look at really matters. If you want life that lasts forever, the gospel says, it isn't how strong your belief is that matters, it is who that belief is focused on, who your faith looks at. The weakest belief in Jesus is infinitely better than the strongest in your own abilities when it comes to being saved. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that? It's a, a Christian thing to say, but it is true. The weakest belief in Jesus is infinitely better than the strongest belief in yourself. Have you ever compared yourself to other Christians, decided whether you were good enough based on the holiest person you can see in the room around you or the mankiest person that you can see around you? Look around you this morning. Every eye that you meet in this room of someone who trusts Jesus, no matter how well or poorly they've done this week, has every strand of their DNA that says, Jesus. Their breath is Jesus' breath. Their heartbeats are Jesus' heartbeats. 
on the outside, you might see Stuart or, or Richard or, or Jeff or Karen or May or Rue or... But their life, their life inside, their life in reality, that is Jesus' life. They're right with God. They are unable now to fall short of God's standard because they have died and they are alive. They're offering nothing of what they were before, none of their failings, none of their sins, and everything of their new life, everything of Jesus' life. Jesus' life that means they are right with God forever and for certain. There's two quick implications as we finish from what Paul has said in these verses that I want us to dwell on this week. Uh, the first of those is this. You become who you trust. So focus your trust on the one who saves. You become who you trust. So focus your trust on the one who saves. Uh, it's quite clear in the second half of the passage that, that people who trust in Jesus become not just a bit like Jesus, but that whatever is true of him is true of them. If Jesus died, you died. If Jesus lives, you live. That is the only life you have. The extension of that, though, is humans always become what we trust. Cephas's faith was strong. He was a, a, an influential leader. He was good at leading God's people in many ways. But he was distracted and focused not on Jesus, but on his own ability to perform, to do the right things on God's good, uh, to stay on God's good side. He became a, a mask. He, uh, he became a, an actor. And Cephas became what he trusted, an illusion. Good for a while, but not solid. He became an actor that was trusting in an act of being good enough. They say that the owners end up looking like their pets. Humans are malleable creatures. We become the ones we trust. When we trust our competence, when we trust our, our, our grades for our value, when we trust our skills at work, when we, uh, we need to be constantly then developing. The, the only way to kind of live up to that is constantly be getting better, showing that the grades are good enough, that the skills are good enough. And otherwise, we won't be valuable anymore. When we get our validation from relationships, from friendships, from uh, partners, we zone in on getting affirmation from them. If we don't get that affirmation, we are not enough. We're not valuable. And when we, when we try to impress God with, with anything other than Jesus, we become like Cephas. We become an actor. When you feel yourself coming here on a Sunday and having to hike a face on so that you can walk in the door, pretend to be something that you're not, our trust has moved somewhere else. When we feel ourselves getting angry or resentful about people not pulling their weight on a Sunday, check who we are trusting in. Check where our relationship with God has come from. We become what we trust. We, be, uh, we become like life-filled Jesus or like an empty actor's mask. And then finally, um, you will be the most confident person in the universe with the weakest faith in Jesus. You will be the most confident person in the universe with the weakest faith in Jesus. And that's the crucial part, in Jesus. Certainty comes from a faith that is focused on Jesus. Faith focused on anything or anyone else leads to uncertainty. Our performance is not just good enough right now if we trust Jesus. A good day and a bad day in terms of our performance, our behavior, doesn't equate to low or high confidence in terms of our relationship with God. 
When Jesus died, we died. When he died, God was satisfied with his perfect obedience. Our certainty comes not from Jesus uh, dying on our behalf, as we often say, not only from that. It comes from the fact that he was perfectly obedient right up to that moment in a way that we never could and never have been. His perfect obedience when he died is finished. It's in the books. It's like a golfer who's in the clubhouse. He can't lose any more shots. His score is in the books. Justification is about God's decision about whether I'm good enough to be in his family forever and for certain. It is a one-off decision based on our performance. And if faith is focused on Jesus, that decision is already made because his performance is perfect. Certainty about your standing before God doesn't come from how strong your faith is. It comes from who it is focused on. Any other performance that you trust to live up to God's standard gives anxiety and uncertainty. Uh, Chris Frash, who's a minister and a Christian writer, um, he has a phrase that he and his wife use around the house. On the days that they're getting stressed uh, and losing um, uh, their courage, uh, they'll say to the other one, there's only one saviour and it's not you. There's only one saviour and it is not you. What Christopher and Caroline are trying to say to each other in that moment uh, is that you, your faith gets its power not from how strong it is, not how, from how good you are, but from who you are focused on. Trusting in anything else is like putting on a mask. That's what Cephas was doing. Pretending like an actor who has played a doctor in a movie that you can perform heart surgery. But trusting in Jesus, staking your eternity on him, gives you not only a powered up life, but a totally, qualitatively different life. Every beat that your heart now beats, every breath that you breathe, that is his heart beating, his lungs breathing. Your confidence not, comes not from trusting harder, but from who you are trusting in for eternity. Trust in Jesus whose work is done, whose obedience is perfect. For the weakest faith in Jesus is infinitely better than the strongest in anything else. Let's pray.